This is the second Sunday in Lent, and uh, on Ash Wednesday in my sermon, I talked about uh, three themes that will be part of the Lenten season, uh, repentance, reconciliation, and godly motives. And today there's a slight change, because what we will also see in the Sundays in Lent uh, sort of um, precursor Easter themes, if that's the right way to say it, which means that uh, we'll visit uh, in our liturgy and in the biblical readings some of the aspects of the fourfold shape of the Easter liturgy, which informs all of the church year in its liturgical expression and its public worship uh, and in the biblical witness. So just briefly, those that fourfold shape involves the presence of the light of Christ, the illuminative processes of God at work in the community of faith we call the church, and also internally in each Christian person, where God's illuminative power allows us to be God's people in the world. The second thing is the rehearsal in the biblical witness of the history of salvation. And we learn two things from this that the history of salvation is in the biblical witness, but Christian people who have listened and reflected on the Bible have come to understand that uh, their history is part of the history of salvation. And the third aspect of this is the power of baptism at work in the church's life. And finally, the Holy Eucharist, the fourth part, which is what we do week to week, month to month, year to year, uh, the spiritual food and drink that strengthens us uh, to go out and to be God's people in the world. So today in the readings from Genesis, from Romans, and from John's Gospel, all contain aspects of these four things, but most particularly the first three. God's illuminative processes, the biblical witness showing us the history of salvation, and then baptism. So that's the, the vantage that I'm going to preach about. And the three questions that we might ask are, what does it mean to be born again? How do we understand uh, how God acts in history? And finally, um, maybe we should say a word, too, about the cross, because today in John's Gospel at the end, we have uh, some comment by Jesus about the cross and its connection to Moses and the people of God in the wilderness and how we might understand the cross as having healing power, which is something many people don't think of immediately when they think of the cross. So we'll talk a little bit about that. Today in Genesis, Abram, you know, we talk about this all the time. Uh, the Hebrew Bible is full of word plays and changes in the, you know, just of a letter or a character. And uh, you get Abram, who's the first, the person we encounter initially. And Abram today receives his marching orders from God. And he doesn't quibble about this. He doesn't argue. He just goes. And Abram, which means exalted father in Hebrew, will become Abraham, the father of many nations. And he takes the people. Well, I, there's an ecumenical issue in this, too, which is very important in terms of 
the, the interfaith dialogue that we always want to think about in terms of the starting point that it gives to us in conversation uh, with co not just our co-religionists, but with the other great faith traditions. Islam and Judaism and Christianity all call Abraham father. And that is the start for how we may, might begin to uh, talk to one another about s somehow that uh, familial connection to uh, the people of God. So Abraham or Abram goes now uh, because he trusts God. He would have used the Hebrew amuna. He had trust and faith in God. And he goes. It was a, quite an undertaking. He had to get the whole gang together. And, you know, it's like the, the movie The Ten Commandments, Cecil B. DeMille. They're all saddled up and they're ready to go. And you got Edward G. Robinson and you got all these people, you know, and they're ready to do all this stuff. And they're ready and they're about ready to go. And somebody says, wait, we can't go. We don't have the bones of Joseph. So there's the scene where somebody brings some wrapped thing and there's a kid on a camel who takes the bones of Joseph so that they go. What does that mean? It's the continuity with the great tradition that's going with them as they move now towards the promised land. So when we talk about Romans, Paul is reasoning rather turgidly, as he always does, about what the implications of this obedience of Abraham and his faith. And Paul's contention is, is that it was reckoned to Abraham as righteous because he was faithful. And he did what God asked him to do. And by extension, since Abraham is the father of many nations, Paul makes the, the comment in so many words that we're all, we share in this in Abraham's family as the people of God, and that we should understand how that works uh, through history. So God acts in history. There's a great uh, propensity amongst Christians to um, always think about God's activity as being somehow supernatural or miraculous. And I'm not going to throw any cold water on that. But, you know, God works most of the time through the commonplace and the ordinary. So when we think about this, attributing these... Uh, St. Augustine did say something I think I've always liked, and that is um, people say that a miracle is something that occurs uh, contrary to the law of nature. And Augustine said a miracle is something that occurs contrary to the known laws of nature. So relying and expecting, though, miracles and all of those kinds of things is probably less of a good idea than to see God's working through people in history, that we become God's instruments. And our response to the divine initiative is the thing that moves things forward. So God's work is always transforming our manners, morals, and customs in a godly direction. 
That's what happened with uh, Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac. The archaeological evidence shows us now that in Canaanite religion and in that part of the ancient Near East, it was customary for people to kill their firstborn son, to sacrifice him, to stay right with the deity. And so when Abraham was, Abraham was taking Isaac to the place to sacrifice him, he was fulfilling the responsibilities of his culture. So the big question always then is, Abraham comes down with Isaac back to the camp. And everybody says, well, geez, Abraham, I see you got Isaac with you. <laughs> you know, yes, I do. Well, I mean, why, you know. He said, uh, God told me that I didn't need to do that. Oh. <laughs> Listen, Abraham, all of us have had to do this. And if you don't do this, things are not going to go well for us. The crops are going to fail. The lambs will drop. There's going to be a big, big problem. So he may have said something like, I can't understand why we believe in a God who would require us to kill our children. And you know, this boy was very dear to me and Sarah. It was a long time before he got born. So I just can't see that that's a reasonable thing. Now, around the same time in the chronological thing, it looks as if uh, there were no more burials of little boys in Canaanite religion, that practice began to stop. So it probably didn't have anything to do with the miraculous voice from the sky saying, don't do this anymore. It had something to do with somebody like Abraham who said, this is not, this doesn't make sense. We're not going to do this. It's not, this is not the God who I said yes to and moved the people uh, in a direction, one hopes a more godly direction. So that's how maybe God works through history. In the gospel, we have the story of Nicodemus coming to see Jesus. Um, when I was a little boy, my grandfather's best friend was a guy named Frank Edwards, and he was from Salt Lake, Utah, but he was not a Mormon. But the Mormons kept at him, even when he moved to Hillsboro, when we were living down in San Mateo. And my grandfather was over there one day, and some Mormon missionaries had showed up to talk with him. Some young men, but also older Mormons from the Mormon community uh, in that part of the peninsula. And they were sitting in the living room, and there was an older guy there who was sitting while the missionaries were talking to Uncle Frank and, you know, saying all this kind of stuff. And finally, this guy hadn't said a word, and he blurted out, pointed it at Frank Edwards, and said, What did Jesus say to Nicodemus? And of course, I don't think Frank Edwards even knew who Nicodemus was, let alone, you know. He was, he was flabbergasted about that. And I can't remember the rest of the conversation, but my grandfather, it was all he could do not to burst out laughing. <laughs> he was kind of uh, 
you know, I told Mark Bruce this story. I'm wondering. Mark Bruce uh, has played the organ at Temple Emmanuel in San Francisco on Arguello Street. They got a big, huge organ there. And in the 1950s, Marcel Dupre, who was the organist at the Vatican, uh, came to play a concert at Temple Emmanuel. And my dad was the treasurer of the American Guild of Organists in San Francisco. And he goes, and somehow he asked my grandfather to go to this organ concert. I have no idea why he would have done that. My grandfather is a Philistine, was a Philistine. <laughs> I mean, it was just didn't make sense. But he went. So we were driving to the store. It was in the late 50s and uh, in Christmas time when I was working at the store. And I said, well, Gramps, how'd you like the concert? And he said, well, listen, they had this little French guy who had a full dress suit on that didn't fit him. <laughs> and as he was playing the concert at the very end, he asked everybody in the audience if they wanted to just write a couple of lines of music, a few notes. And he took all these things and he went back to the organ console to do an improvisation, you see. But he had all these things, and he said he was very excited, and he goes back and he puts them all on the, on the thing where you put the music in, and he hit the organ with such force that every light in the place went out. <laughs> and uh, Grandpa just roared with laughter. And all those musical people who were there looked at him like, you know, how did this guy get in here? Well, Nicodemus comes to Jesus in the dark, and there's a symbolism here. He's in the dark. He wants to know more about this. And God's illuminative processes begin now to work through Jesus speaking to Nicodemus about this because Nicodemus believes that what Jesus has been doing must indicate that there is some, uh, some truthfulness to who, who he is and what he says and wants to know more. And so Jesus explains to him that he needs to be, in the older English translations and still in some now, it says you must be born again. So there's some biblical support, uh, some would say, for this process of conversion that takes place uh, with people who feel now that they have been born again. In the original language, the word anothen means to be born from above. And so the New Revised Standard Version correctly translates what it says. So how, does it, how do we understand what it means to be born from above? And Jesus speaks about being born by water and the Spirit. There are a lot of people, a lot of biblical scholars who have said that there isn't a, much sacramental stuff in the gospel according to St. John, and it's loaded with it. There's a, never a lot of explicit mention of various things, but it's implied, it's taken for granted. And so this is a direct reference to baptism and the sacramental processes that Christian people think are part of this package. Thomas Keating says, Grace is the presence and action of Christ at every moment of our lives. The sacraments are ritual actions in which Christ is present in a special manner, confirming and sustaining the major commitments of our Christian lives. So Jesus is saying to him, this is important. 
I think that's one of the reasons Jesus got baptized, as a matter of fact. I think there was some, uh, he, why he thought that was important to do. So as he goes along, Jesus then gives us what many refer to as the gospel in a nutshell. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him should not perish, but may have eternal life. So now you know where that comes from in the ballpark where some guy back in the, you know, uh, back in the center field has hung a thing over the deal that says John 3.16. Right? The gospel in a nutshell. But then Jesus begins to speak about the power of the cross and how Moses holds up a serpent in the wilderness to heal the people uh, who are in the wilderness who are being bitten by poisonous snakes and scorpions. I don't know chronologically, whatever, and I can't remember the proper name, but you know, if you ever go to your doctor, some of them have on the wall, there's one at our doctor's down on, uh, right on the front of the building. It's a cadu, what do you call it? Caduceus. It's snakes in the for- on a cross, so to speak. So just as Moses did this to heal, so too the Son of Man will be exalted in this fashion and what he does will have healing power. To save somebody in this regard, in, 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 the, in the original, both in Hebrew and Greek, means to heal, to make whole. So Jesus is speaking of this. Um, we, we get close to this time of year, I always talk about the atonement and what it means. And we talk about all the theories of the atonement. There are a lot of different theories of the atonement. And what I think is being described in this section is a theory of the atonement that some call the exemplarist theory. Peter Abelard. Did you ever see the Abelard and Eloise? Heloise? Did you ever see that play? Abelard was a theologian in the Middle Ages, and his view was that there was moral power in looking at the cross. That somehow understanding this in depth was important. Not just the suffering, but the healing power of the cross. My first bishop in the Diocese of California, C. Kilmer Myers, was in Germany uh, towards the end of World War II. And he was in Nuremberg, uh, which uh, the Allies had bombed. So most of it was no higher than about two feet. And he met with a number of Lutheran pastors and uh, Roman Catholic priests and so forth. And one day, after walking around the city, he just he said to one of them, I don't know how you can stand this being here all the time. I mean, how do, how do you cope with this? What do you do? And this pastor said to him, always look at the cross. Keep your eyes on the cross. Always look at the cross. So in this reading from John's Gospel, we maybe have an inkling uh, that there is some power 
uh, in the cross to heal, not just to focus on the violence and on the horribleness of it, but to see why it has been such a powerful symbol for many people and why it's not unreasonable for them to suggest that sometimes maybe we should just get on our knees and say thank you. Amen. <laughs>